everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Modern CFO Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Seski. Today's episode highlights one of my favorite topics again, thoughtful democratization and access to alternative investments. I know you've heard me discuss secondaries and venture funds with Aman and Andrea, regulating accreditation, the history of Reg CF with Woody, even angel investing with Osleen. But today, I'm thrilled to take another approach at this topic, which is so important and so critical at this time, with Allison Stalo, the CFO of Fundrise. Allison, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Super excited for the conversation. So could you give us a quick overview of Fundrise? I know it's actually the largest direct investor real estate platform in the U.S. today. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's right. So Fundrise is a fintech company with a mission, a really broad mission of building a better financial system for individuals. But today that means alternative asset management, primarily focused in real estate, really with the idea of giving everyday people access to the private markets that they were you know, historically excluded from, whether due to lack of scale, lack of, of wealth. And in that mission, we've built kind of a capital raising machine founded in regulatory excellence that allows us to scale thousands of individuals' investments to then utilize capital deployment technology to compete for alternative assets with the Blackstones and Starwoods and and with the launch of our venture capital fund and now with the Sequoias of the world. We have about three and a quarter billion in equity AUM offered exclusively through diversified portfolios. And, and our goal right now is to disrupt the private markets by using technology and new approaches on old industries to give outsized returns back to investors. So I really like this approach, and we're going to go into the nuances of risk, reward, investment profile for differences between institutional investing and retail. But I'd like to go back in time first, because you are a, a relatively recent CFO and in this industry. So I know you cut your teeth in the world of finance at KPMG, so big four experience. Uh, I want to take a minute to discuss uh, early career. And I think that sometimes people think that big four audit or accounting background is a qualification for a direct route to a CFO position. But you also worked at the SEC. So I want to kind of balance some of these, the regulatory knowledge that you have uh, and some of the experiences that you had that are going to make you and continue to allow you to be a really successful, you know, impact engine at Fundrise. Yeah. So I, I joined Fundrise as CFO last year. So 18 months in the making. I've, I've been a CFO for a whole, <laughs> a whole 18 months. Like you said, prior to that, I was in audit. I was at the SEC. Um, I was in a policy-oriented regulatory role as the chief accountant for the Division of Investment Management, um, which is the division that regulates registered investment companies and registered investment advisors and sets policy for them. And I think that that background has been you know, particularly important for Fundrise. We have kind of a, a business built on regulatory discipline, and that's been a huge differentiator for us. It really has set us apart. I, I always joke like, oh, we, we literally chose to play in like all of the securities laws, <laughs> not, not just like one of them. Um, and, and whether that's Regulation A plus or the 40 Act, um, I think the structure that we've built requires a ton of regulatory compliance and discipline for a company of our size, um, for, for really, you know, kind of a, a startup to, to deal with. And we've focused on that regulatory excellence within the organization since the beginning, innovating within the regulatory requirements. I think you know, within Regulation A+, we're, I think we're the biggest user um, and the most successful operator in that regulation. And so, you know, 
that comfort with kind of the the compliance and the regulatory discipline was was one reason that I felt comfortable moving to fundrise from the SEC. But obviously, my background is heavily, heavily accounting. <laughs> um, and when you think about finance, it's obviously much broader than that. Um, I think it makes sense for for fundrise and where we are. But certainly, as we look to the future, we'll want to focus on you know hiring finance team members um, with with different backgrounds that me that comp- that complement my background. Yeah, it almost seems like we're teasing out your definition of a modern CFO. So we could really we could start there as well. I think that we get an overwhelming amount of guests who just argue that CFOs, the new breadth of responsibilities has really changed, especially today, whether it's, you know, like you just mentioned, uh, hiring human resources, being a leader that attracts other team members from, you know, more diverse backgrounds and, you know, keeping them engaged. The retention, I think is a huge issue right now and the churn of employment. So Really curious as to what you think, uh, even though it's been 18 months, these have been a pretty volatile and uh, unique 18 months to uh, take on this leadership position. So really curious to hear from your perspective. Yeah, so I I think there's two things I'd mention, maybe one more kind of like a mantra or approach to being a CFO today. And second, what I think is really important for a mission-oriented business like, like Fundrise to consider when hiring a CFO. So the first one, I, I think it's that you have to be constantly evolving. CFO role is constantly changing. But what I mean is that as a modern CFO, you must be constantly evolving as an individual and as a professional. Like you said, like any C-suite or senior leadership role, there's a really broad spectrum of knowledge and, and disciplines underlying the role. And especially when you're in a high growth environment of like a tech company. And so you can't possibly know everything, but you need to be agile and responsive to the needs of the business. Um, and, and I think on top of that, being the CFO of a startup is very different than that of a late stage, um, kind of pre-IPO business is very different than that of a matured institutionalized business. Obviously, my lens at Fundrise is kind of mid to late stage. We're a mission-oriented business. And, and again, my first CFO role. So take this all with a <laughs> grain of salt. But you know, I think what that has meant for me is really being able to flex as an individual, as a professional and relying on resources, whether that's internal team members or external consultants to, to kind of help you have that breadth of knowledge. I remember, you know, at the SEC as a regulator, whenever you are engaging with the public, um, you share this disclaimer. I'm sure you've heard it. The views I express today do not reflect those of the commission commissioners, my colleagues on the staff. I'm like thrilled to be on the other side of that and to not have to watch what I say so closely, but I still have a disclaimer, which is, you know, I think every day I, I want people to know I reserve the right to get smarter. And, and I think that's been true my entire career. When you ask people if they have a five-year plan, I, I would always laugh at that because I had a 50-year plan. <laughs> but but that that 50-year plan did, did not point me, you know, with the expectation of landing in a CFO role. It did not point me to working at the SEC, nonetheless, as the chief accountant of a major operating division. Um, it didn't even actually um, point me to being an accountant in the first place. I, I was a, I was pre-med and undergrad. I was a psychology major. That knowledge has actually like really, really been incredibly useful in, in leadership roles. Um, but I think it's the ability to, to pivot, to embrace discomfort and doing things you've never done before. And then again, to constantly evolve. Um, that has served me so well in my first 18 months as CFO. I would say, ask me again in five years, I might, I might have a different... <laughs> All right, well, we'll do that. I'll, I'll mark it on my calendar now. I want to ask, uh, kind of point to something that you sort of teased a second ago on the complexity of the security environment and regulatory environment in general here. And I'm curious as to what you think about 
investor relations and investor communications and transparency because you have your own investors and stakeholders of Fundrise itself, yet you also have thousands, I think I saw 150,000 investors since 2012 come through the platform. 380,000, I think. Okay. All right. So that posits a a unique challenge in ensuring uh, transparency, because I think that the compromise of understanding risk can be, uh, it's, it's a hard thing to help people go point them to the right resources, uh, just because of the breadth of, or the variety of uh, background and education in alternative investments, understanding uh, liquidity risk, understanding risk in general, and understanding alternatives and you know what opportunity cost of capital they have elsewhere. Uh, so all of that to say, I'm curious as to how you think about investor communications and transparency for fundrise stakeholders and how maybe that um, that standard that you have to set in terms of transparency and communication with you know, 300,000 plus investors, maybe those translate uh, across, uh, maybe you've created this really high bar for the rest of us to learn from in terms of managing our own stakeholders. You know, Our firm here does not have 300,000 shareholders, yet we feel a very uh, powerful need to be really transparent with them. Uh, so kind of curious as to how those interact with each other and the standard that you set. Yeah, so it's interesting you asked that. I, I think because of the technology, because of the apps that we work through and how we engage with our investors directly, not through any intermediaries, we have a a tool handy to to communicate with them as often as we want, really. And so, you know, it's it's funny, sometimes when I ask our auditors for um, feedback, they always say, you disclose a lot. (laughs) And and, and that's actually like really rare, right? Right. Um, That you over disclose. But, But, you know, we we put out emails to our investor base every time we acquire a property or some major update happens. Um, that information is readily available in the app. You can go find it. We think that there, there are investors that don't care and they, they don't want to know every minute detail, but we think there are a lot of investors who also are interested in learning about that and making that all available in the app um, you know, gives them kind of a, a tool at their at their disposal to, to, to go research anything that they want. We we also have an investor relations team that handles incoming inquiries and and certainly you know a lot of time in, engaging with investors that have questions and then you know in terms of of understanding risk i think something that's obviously well i i think it's obviously unique about our platform is is that because of our incentive alignment we're you know we're endeavoring to cut out the middleman we we don't work with sponsors of real estate anymore for example don't charge a 2 and 20 um, we don't have a promote or carry and so, you know, our incentives, we think, are, are therefore more aligned with investors to not have huge, huge risk because we don't need home runs because we're, we're not getting a carrier promote. Um, and, and so I think that also makes our, our platform a, a little bit interesting um, in, in kind of communicating the risk and, and volatility of our returns to investors. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that understanding all of the stakeholders in any sort of investment is really important just to ensure incentive alignment. And also you point to a huge trend that we're going to see in the venture world where maybe scaling at all costs and growth at all costs isn't the best for the entire industry. And maybe momentum in the venture world will be less of a strategy. And you know maybe those dollars will uh, switch. I think we're already starting to see uh, growth at all costs switch to uh, extending runway and being you know, more uh, protective over that runway. 
if we have more of a market turned down, you know, I think we're going to end up seeing a lot of consolidation of talent, a lot of consolidation of venture dollars. I think deal flow might slow a little bit. I think rounds might stay pretty large, but I think it's going to be really competitive in the next few years. So I think finding allocations into those environments is also really tough. We hosted a we actually hosted an event last year uh, called Bridging the Gap in Private Equity. And we had a multifamily office investor, a private equity investor, a VC, and a small cap a hedge fund all get on stage and talk about access and liquidity. And you know, in the real estate world, I think about you know, there's a, a firm called Cadre. There's a, there are a couple of people who are really trying to hammer this point home that you know, even extremely wealthy individuals, even family offices, RAAs have an incredibly difficult time competing with institutional dollars because it's so challenging. It's far easier for an investment firm to manage one to two pension relationships than or endowments or any other institutional uh, dollars than it is 300,000 individuals. And a lot of that can be solved through reporting efficiencies like technology, but even even getting access to in a competitive environment like alternatives is really difficult. You know, KKR just listed one of their healthcare funds on Securitize, trying to see if they could democratize some access. But I still think those are all qualified purchasers, yeah. um, qualified buyers. Um, so there's a huge conversation here around access. I'm really curious to know. Obviously, Fundrise is really unique in terms of way way smaller uh, investment size minimums, right? And I just don't know that that exists elsewhere. There are fundraising platforms out there, but I, I worry that those have sort of a Costco effect of startups and you know right. everything. I like the fact that Fundrise does a really great job of um, communicating and showcasing exactly what the offering is. And I really like the competition of fees. I think that's healthy for the environment altogether. I think you should be able to prove your value in competing in, in this space. So that was kind of a small diatribe on, on my part, but uh, no. it's really interesting. Yeah, no, I, I mean, to, to answer, I, I think you alluded to this, but yeah, our, our investment minimum is $10. Um, I don't think that there's anyone else <laughs> out there offering um, investments in institutional quality real estate for, for a $10 minimum. And that obviously requires a ton of technology. Like you said, in some ways, it, it is easier to... Um, manage uh, bespoke needs of a couple of institutions. Um, but I think we think that, you know, that's where technology is the differentiator. We have zero salespeople on staff. And, and that's because salespeople salivate over the institutional investor, over the $10 million, $20 million, $100 million investor, right? But our software doesn't care. Um, it doesn't care if you're a $10 investor, if you're a $1,000 investor, or if you have millions to bring to the platform. I think that's where you know we're able to to reach scale, and then now we've been able to source institutional quality real estate, and we are competing with with the Blackstones and the Starwoods for for real estate. Um, that took some time to to build up, but I think though you know those are the reasons that we've been able to do that. So I actually learned about. I want to move a little bit away from the uh, traditional real estate offerings because the innovation fund is really interesting to me as well. I think there've yeah. been a few swings at attempting to do this elsewhere that. I'm not positive have gone as well. I, I suppose out there, I'm trying to think if there are a handful of public entities that are venture firms that maybe you could buy the GP stake in, but pretty rare. I want to talk about the Innovation Fund and I want to share, I probably shouldn't be promoting another podcast on the Modern CFO, but I learned about the Innovation Fund from um, the Acquired podcast. There was a, a Fundrise uh, 
advertisement throughout it. And I immediately went over to the site and I was actually pretty, pretty fascinated by some of the, uh, so the, the data and the deck that is out there. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about it and if it's the same uh, access to retail or how that fund is going to be structured. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the acquired guys are good colleagues and, and we love being able to, to advertise on that's just an amazing podcast. So glad you mentioned it. But yeah, so the innovation fund we launched in uh, July kind of taking a really slow approach to fundraising there. Um, but I think there's really two reasons why we think this fund is so important. So, you know, one, we want to give individuals access to investment opportunities they've been closed out of. Um, this this will be the same situation as our real estate funds, low dollar requirement um, minimum. And um, we think a low fee structure and, and will allow them to get into, you know, pre-public companies, the, the private market equity in the same way that they've been able to access real estate through our platform. But secondarily, we, we also want to offer founders an alternative to venture capital. We, we've avoided venture capital as a pre-IPO company. Um, and that's been, it's been really unique. It's really allowed us to control our own destiny. And, and so we think that founders, you know, we, I guess I would say we think we're reaching kind of an inflection point in private company financing. Not only do founders and leaders want different sources of capital, I think they're going to require it after the insolvency that probably will stem from this coming crisis. And so we think our timing has kind of come together perfectly there. It's a massive opportunity to fund the next public companies while they build. And, and because of that exponential growth that you see in private companies today, you know you really can't be successful if you're not built on some massive technology-enabled solution, in, in our opinion. We think the outcomes are non-linear, so price matters less than quality. We want great companies at good prices, not good companies at great prices. And, and we think that will really speak to founders. I also think you, know, you and I were, were kind of hitting on this before we got started, the FTX exchange meltdown. <laughs> I think that's been really interesting too. When you, when you think about VC, I think there's so many venture firms that kind of dumped their investors' money into something that it seems pretty clear they didn't understand or fully vet. Um, whether it was fraud or you know lack of disclosure, I think the related party relationship. I just I just don't see how that didn't raise any red flags, and I I think it's it's possibly part of a longer term meltdown of trust in venture capital from both investors and founders. They've kind of spent too long riding the coattails of their last successes. What do they say? Being successful in venture comes from being successful in venture, right? <laughs> I haven't heard that one, but I like it. And, and, you know, we kind of think that's not enough anymore, at, at least in tech. And, and I think part of that is that venture has had a lot of power over founders, over entrepreneurs. The power to fund at like really insane pricing was their advantage. And, and we think the ability to truly evaluate the quality and sophistication of the technology will become the driver for successful venture investing instead. And, and you kind of see this already with venture firms, like they might have an engineer or two on staff, or maybe one of their partners is a former engineer. But I think we would say, what if you had 150 technologists on your team who are currently and actively in the practice of building technology, something that changes literally every day, <laughs> who could evaluate the technology of a portfolio company? And, and so that's what we're doing. We, we think the ability to evaluate the fundamentals of, of the technology, which is the exponential growth driver of tech companies, is going to be so much more important than the pricing power over capital that flows to, to pre-IPO companies. Yeah, that's fascinating. I really, really love the fact that there are differentiated approaches arising because it is a reflection of uh, a pretty crying need. 
is there going to be a full-time venture team on the Fundrise staff that's coming in or is there uh, existing investors that are really passionate about the space who, uh, you know, is it going to be um, industry specific or relatively vague? Is it going to be, uh, you know, are there going to be multiple funds or is there just going to be one target really large fund? I'm really curious to some of the dynamics here. Yeah, so we we already have um, a small team built out that that has kind of like worked through the analysis of our buy box mm-hmm. and the the you know taking all of the like pre public tech companies and narrowing them down to here are the ones that that we think are probably good and then starting to have conversations with those founders and leadership teams and then you know where there's interest mutual interest then starting to bring in our, our team of engineers um, to look at the technology and you know see what they think about the quality. Um, right now, I think the intent is to, to just have the one fund. We want to take you know a slow start to, to getting it up and running. Um, we've started fundraising, but but very, very slowly. Um, and it won't open to all cohorts until you know probably sometime next year. Um, but but yeah, I think the the plan for now is is just the one fund and and let's see where we can get traction and um, how we can engage with founders that that again have an interest in an alternative source of capital. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about uh, the dynamics of growth where I think the venture scenario still forces binary outcomes and they want them fast because you know a handful of companies is going to return the entirety of the fund. And I don't know if that's a really healthy environment for founders, uh, you know, it sort of promotes just some sort of reckless business behaviors, I think, that aren't necessarily very healthy. Whereas if you've got, you know, family office investors and more patient capital, or it sounds like this new Fundrise Innovation Fund could be, uh, you know, a new uh, participant in building out that ecosystem. It's really interesting to see. Uh, there's a Stanford professor that I follow really closely who puts out uh, the average SaaS uh, route to typical timing to IPO. And there are a handful of uh, firms in the last few years that are one to three years. Uh, it's it's pretty, pretty incredible to see how the typical timeline from you know, seven to 10. And it also kind of forces the, the question, is all this value creation synthetic when uh, you know the public markets get to evaluate? Uh, there has been, I mean, there was a, a huge bump in IPOs uh, in technology, and then the public markets have started to dry up again in, in terms of IPOs because it's uh, it's a little rockier and more volatile at the moment. But uh, it's really interesting to see the public evaluate these companies that are not profitable and, and public. So, you know, there are some success stories still. There are the, the Ubers out there in the world. and uh, But it's really interesting to see uh, what's synthetic growth and on paper and, you know, if there's going to be more liquidity solutions uh, that are available for founders that uh, can relieve that pressure valve a bit. I think that there's a more likely scenario that we have richer companies that take their time to grow properly. Uh, and I think that'll end up being great for the ecosystem. Also probably better for investors over the long term. So really, really interested to see that competition grow outside of the institutional dollars that are back in the, the VCs. Yeah, those and especially for those investors that get to to have access to to that when founders choose that alternative source. I think what what you said is like is super interesting. I would think about this from like a CFO perspective to, you know, a, a, a mercenary CFO, one who isn't focused on your mission can be as bad for you as a company as the wrong venture firm. Um, because they, you know, they'll get you to the next milestone. Um you might be falling over the finish line, but but you'll make it. But the future of your business will no longer be their opportunity because they're so focused on that like short-sighted m- milestone that they're that they're trying to reach. 
And, and in the process of doing that, it can destroy your team. It can destroy your culture. It can destroy your mission. And maybe even ultimately the actual benefit that you're trying to create for your customer. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's like super, super important that, that you know, pub, private companies are um, getting an alternative source um, to kind of protect that. Yeah, at the very least, it should be competitive. I think that's just healthy for the ecosystem as well. Yeah. So yeah. We're, we're making some pretty bold claims here. I want to also think about how we think this is going to play out. So one of the things I really like to talk about is sort of short-term 12-month versus uh, three to five-year goals, priorities, and what you're thinking about in terms of what I think is going to be a pretty aggressive shakeup in both public and private markets, which may actually be an interesting time to build the things that you're building. So yeah. I want to take a step back and think a little bit more broadly about, uh, about the space. Yeah. So I think, you know, we spend a ton of time right now talking about what the next 12 months will bring. Um, in our minds, we, we think this crisis is, is likely to kind of be a slow, long drawn out one over the next 24 months. And, and really thinking about, you know, what, what does that mean for the business and, you know, what challenges will that bring up, but also what opportunities will that bring up for us and for our investors? And so we think that, you know, the only place to be at the moment is on the sidelines, <laughs> kind of hoarding capital, waiting for the opportunistic rescue money plays to those opportunities to, to come up. I think longer term, you know, one of the things I like, I'll, I'll say even like longer, longer than three to five years, I think the technological developments and that, that are coming and how they will impact both health and wealth preservation are, are really interesting. I think there's going to be like massive shifts in, in how we think about that over, over the near term and in what tools are kind of available to us. I'm going to sound a little bit like a futurist, but I, I think we're living at a time when life expectancy has the opportunity to, to really change. I think many Gen X and millennials will like easily see their, their hundreds. I think Gen Z will see that as an average. Um, if you look back 25 years ago, we barely had the internet. 15 years ago, we finally got smartphones. Like, you know, a, a lot has happened even in in the last um in the last two years during the pandemic. And I think we're going to see an exponentially different world in you know 20 to 30 years. And so what we'll see over the next three to five that will make that possible um, from a health perspective, you know, I I can't really predict. That's not my area of expertise, but I think the healthier you remain, the more you'll be able to capture benefit from those technological advantages. But from a wealth perspective, I think it, it'll require you to step outside the traditional approach to retirement and investing. Um, 60-40 stock bond allocation won't cut it anymore. And, and private market investments really need will grow. And, um, and those who don't access it, you know, will will kind of be left behind. But I think that combined with a lot of the other kind of paradigm shifts happening in the world right now, conversion to work, remote work environments, uh, the wealth accumulation of millennials and Gen Z death of the pension shift to self-management, and even like the distrust in institutions, the embracing of autonomy and individuals, network effects, all of those things. These coming years, we'll see individuals really owning their investment choices. It's it's really, it's, it's exciting, I think, for us, because it means there's going to be a lot of unsupervised capital out there mm -hmm. from asset managers, old line asset managers who aren't thinking about individuals. Yeah, you can already see some of this happening, consolidation of the RIA space, the... the... Mm -hmm interesting way that Gen Z is choosing more non-traditional career paths and creating wealth in really unique ways. So I think I think you're right. I think all this is uh, taking hold today and we'll definitely see indications of it in the next three to five years. I think yeah. I've got a unique uh, opportunity here also to discuss with you what you think the future of accreditation may look like. Uh, it's hard to speculate given the sort of um, 
more responsive nature of the SEC. It's hard to kind of proactively regulate. I understand that it's a very, very challenging job to protect uh, investors, yet also uh, democratize access to a space while educating on risk. And I think it's, like you mentioned, it's just a different world today, though, given the amount of access to complex investment theses and strategies. And if you take the time, I think you can be fairly sophisticated. I think it's a it's a hard industry to cut your teeth in no matter what, given the risk associated with any highly illiquid investment. But as the world becomes more sophisticated and more comfortable with investing online, you know, doing proper diligence, you know, and comparing that to the diligence of some of the, of the best firms, I think it's fair to say that, you know, if you can go gamble, you know, away at a casino, uh, there's a, a good right. point that <laughs> investors are, who are, you can demonstrate uh, education. Actually, there, I know Jason Calcanis is working really hard to create some sort of standard. I think he's raising a, a new fund. I'm not sure, but I think he's working very hard on that as well. And I know a lot of the regulators want to provide some more clarity. And I think maybe some of this will come, I hope not as a backlash from the crypto space in terms of investor protection. I hope we don't get set back too far, but curious as to your perspective on what the future of accreditation may look like and qualified purchase definitions and all that fun stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I could be wrong. Definitely could be wrong. I, I don't know that we'll see anything in this administration. It doesn't seem to be a top priority for, for them. But I, I think that's the challenge of being on the staff. Like, you know, there, there's people, I, I met so many people when I was on the staff who are interested in learning from, you know, people out in practice, people out in industry, what makes sense? What do you think? But they have the challenge of, you know, they're kind of oscillating between these politically appointed leaderships that, that at different times wants you to engage, wants you to talk to people, and other times they won't allow it. But I think they they are smart enough to meet you where you are. I know, like, my former colleagues, when I was on the staff, like, we read your tweets, you know, they they view your Reddit posts, they're, they're watching your TikTok videos. Um, and so I think, you know, keep speaking to them, engaging with them, uh, but have the patience to understand that, you know, I, I think regulatory processes is so complex. There's limited resources. People can only focus on so much. Um, I, I do hope that, like you said, you know, because of the advancements and the way people are accessing investments, you know, some future version of the staff will, will see that and, and think about unique ways to, to modify the, the definition and the requirements to, to meet accredited investor status. Right. Well, Maybe we'll see the advancement in, I think, well, the Jobs Act actually came out through, uh, you know, the desire for more engagement from the public. You know, maybe it's a more cyclical thing that we discuss more proactively in market cycles. So maybe there's uh, Mm -hmm. a way that that goes forward. Or if if capital gains tax increases, maybe uh, (laughs) maybe more more private investment exposure. um, Right, right. Drive revenue in the government. But I really want to segue into my favorite part of the podcast. Uh, which is always the question, you know, do you feel that there's anything underestimated in the world today, whether it's, you know, uh, something in the world of finance or something completely unrelated? It's my favorite thing to learn from uh, CFOs, you know, very unique vantage points and perspectives as to an area that maybe we're not thinking about, but that you feel we should uh, drive some attention to. Yeah, I love, I mean, I love this question. It's so big and broad. Um, (laughs) So I'll, I'll maybe go big and broad, but mention a, a few different things. I, to me, it's the power of the individual. And, and I think kind of the, the 
dominance of the individual, rise of the individual, um, and kind of the exponential value of scale that can come from empowered individuals. And we hear this a lot, right? Like your vote matters, your your wallet matters. But I, I think people really have a lot of agency over their future right now, and including how you build wealth. I think that's super important. Obviously, that that plays to our strategy, right? We we believe that small but many is less fragile than large and few. Um, and so, you know, that's why we we've, we've targeted an individual investor. I think we think smart money won't be the big money, but kind of the collective sentiment of the smaller dollars that aggregate to large effects and accrue benefits to the individual as well, which again puts the power back in the individual. And I, I think that change is really underestimated by institutions hmm. today. Um, and and most most importantly in in wealth management, I think they they still devote the broad swath of their resources to other institutions. And and I think that's going to continue to work for them for some time. Like that's not changing immediately, but I think the switch is happening now. And and you don't want to be behind on that work of engaging with with the individual. And then I think from an individual perspective, I think that's where, you know, you have to focus on constantly evolving, constantly adapting to the resources and the opportunities that become available to you and and taking advantage of those. I really like that. I always say in these episodes that people should go back and just hit that back 30 second button and re-listen to a piece of the podcast. I really think that's an important uh, trend that's already taking place, already capturing a lot of attention. And maybe, you know, maybe we're seeing the rise of the next Blackstone uh, as we speak right now. So that I think that's really powerful that the collective uh, may be the next uh, institution, just in a different way that we think about it. Uh, one of the things that we didn't cover that I really wanted to was the uh, the transition to Fundrise. I think that uh, we mentioned briefly uh, the really formal institutional background of the big four of government. Uh, I, I'm kind of curious as to maybe for some of the other aspiring CFOs or CFOs who are relatively new in, in their position, how is the, you know, how is that risk profile in your mind? Um, has it changed since in the last 18 months? Uh, and what was kind of the onus and catalyst for that for you? Yeah, it's it's honestly been like such such a big transition. Um, you know, I in in a lot of ways I was going from I, I said this recently, like I, you know I was just judging what other people were doing um, from an auditor regulator perspective, and not actually doing the work. And and man is doing the work a lot harder than you think when when you're on the other side judging. But I think that transition from institutionalized organizations to a startup. Is, is just complex and challenging for, for so many reasons. I think a big piece of it is the mindset of, you know, technical specialization, right? Like when you, when you work at a big um, institution, being very narrow and deep um, is super important. But then, you know, coming to a company like Fundrise earlier stage than, than certainly where I've, I've been in the past, you know, you, you have to be able to kind of like step outside of, of that perspective of like this very narrow accounting standard is so important <laughs> and think about like, what does this mean more broadly for the organization? What's best for the company as a whole and, and balancing, you know, all of those things. And, and I think that's, it's, it's really challenging. I, I think I was prepared for it, but I, I don't think I was prepared for how difficult it would be. I'm, I'm really lucky to have a leadership team that, that kind of appreciates that that understands what a big transition that was going to be. And so they've like taken, they've kind of like brought me along on this journey so far. But I think if you're not prepared for that, that that will be a struggle. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. I think that's a great comment on kind of the mindset shift that needs to take place for those thinking about making the leap to, you know, a similar company of size to, to fundrise. 
Uh, the last thing I'll mention is kind of fun. We were chatting about, uh, it seems like we're both voracious consumers of articles and information. And I, for those listening, Allison's got a, a pretty full bookshelf behind her. Uh, and it's always funny to say we were chatting about the newsfeed that Enthround has. And just kind of curious if there are any kind of standout. Uh, we talked about the Acquired podcast that's really great for deep dives. And me personally, I'm very lucky I get to have conversations like this. Is there any sort of your favorite outlet? It's very hard to curate your social media to get all the information and data that you want. But curious if you do anything sure. interesting or have read anything that we should all take a look at. Oh, that's good. On so, the spot. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I love the question. It's, it's so true. I always like, I keep hoping for like some curated outlet that will like, <laughs> it for me. So I, I don't have to. I, I think like one of my favorite things to read, do, do you read Matt Levine, Bloomberg? Yep, sure. Kind of yeah, so I like I I would highly highly recommend him. Um, I I think it it obviously speaks to my background. He focuses a lot on securities laws, and right. I, I'll, I'll tell like an interesting story about about him. I kind of always always read him. He recently, this is maybe in the last year, picked up on a nuance of like the accounting standards that that yeah. don't work, um, particularly as it relates to digital assets. So. With digital assets, if you're an operating company, you're in intangible accounting. And so it's impairment accounting. And so you can never actually write it up. You can only write it down. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so if you think about like huge companies like Tesla and MicroStrategies that have so much Bitcoin on their books, it's it's held at like the la- the lowest price, <laughs> the lowest market value that's been out there since they purchased it, which is just in- insane, right? And Matt Levine picked up on this. And, and I just, I love that like somehow he was able to, to find yeah. that. But we used to joke that like we should have like a trigger as as regulators or standard setters that like if Matt Levine picks up on complexity um, <laughs> as, as a result of you know regulatory standards then then we should probably be be looking at that but but he's I mean highly recommend so entertaining um, and so much fun to read. Oh, thanks so much for that. I really appreciate it, Allison. Uh, and I should probably mention we've covered a lot of of topics around uh, you know alternative investing. Obviously, none of this is investment advice. Everyone Thank should you. spend a lot of time. <laughs> managing uh, their assets, talking to their advisors and making really informed decisions. But I do have to say that Fundrise also puts out a lot of really great educational resources that I've had the opportunity to explore recently. And I I can definitely vouch to their their quality. So I highly recommend checking out the website. Uh, Allison, is there a way for people to get in touch with you if they'd like to learn more? Or uh, is the website the best way to to explore the new, um, you know, all the new things that are happening at, at the firm? Yeah, I, I think I'd say like fundraise in general, our website, our app, um, sign up for our email. You don't have to be an investor to get information about the acquisitions we're making and, and our portfolio and our strategy and kind of our, our letters. And then check out our podcast. It's called Onward, not to mention a, another podcast, <laughs> but that, you know, we're, we're, we're slowly building that up. We also have a newsletter called The Distance where we talk about long-term thinking broadly, not just as it relates to um, an investment strategy. And then for, for me, LinkedIn um, is, is probably the best. I'm on Twitter. I read a lot of it, but I'm a lurker. I, I don't actually tweet. So, <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, Allison. It's been another episode of the Modern CFO Podcast, and I hope we have a chance to circle back in five years. Agreed. Hopefully sooner. <laughs> <laughs> Thank All you right. so much, Andrew. Appreciate it.